What makes a movie good? What makes a new series worth watching? And how do you know when to invest your time into a new series or ignore it in this era of infinite content? We're also currently living in the age of coronavirus and we have plenty of time on our hands, but it still feels necessary to discern what programming is worthwhile and what you can swat away. We're getting a lot of opinions and recommendations from friends, and half of that might be a moot point given that we don't necessarily share the same streaming services with Netflix and Amazon Prime and Disney Plus and Apple TV and HBO and Showtime and on and on. It's hard to know if you can even watch a thing, whether or not it's worth your time. But I want to use as an example today for discussion the HBO series Chernobyl, which debuted in 2019 and has become even more prescient today. This is an excellent show, and I want to break down why it's so good, how these kind of stories can be so impactful, and how we interpret them in terms of meaning. Throughout this miniseries, there are many poetic images of dust settling on tabletops, of quiet little seconds between the high points of frenzy, of the light shining in just so, of a character running her finger on the windowsill and examining the tiny particles that we would mostly otherwise ignore. And these beautiful vignettes, these mere seconds of video footage, like ambient photographs, carry such weight knowing what we know as viewers, don't they? Knowing that we're dealing with something microscopic that can kill us that even though this series is epic in its proportions and spans months and then years, that there remains an intense significance to the fleeting moments between things and that in those moments we have insight, we have discovery, we have flashes of genius and understanding. And the directors of this show are able to convey that through the slightest of turns, through the littlest cinematic devices. Those are, of course, contrasted to the long and laborious passages of intense human drama and action that punctuate the story of Chernobyl. And it's with this very adept rhythm that the show maintains a constant dynamic interest. And it's fascinating to behold from a technical perspective as a film student, but also just as a layperson consuming content to mix things up like this is something I think gives the show a lot of 
power and impact. But it's the little moments that I want to really emphasize here as being transcendent in a way that only great cinema can be visually and spanning time itself. There is this instance in the first episode where dust travels through the night sky caught by moonlight and unfortunate townspeople near Chernobyl relish the powder like snow, beholding it, playing in it, the children rejoicing almost. And only we understand the deadliness here, the severity of this toxic material wafting through the Soviet sky and the tragedy and doom befalling these characters. It's a really powerful thing to behold that, to know that in the tiniest moments of normal life and the little pleasures that we usually treasure, there can be something so insidious and dangerous creeping in. It's as hypnotic as phenomena like campfires can be to just witness the flickering light, in this case, on the screen. Episode one is all about that sense of disorientation, that disjointedness, that denial of what has really happened. And that denial comes from the top through corrupt leadership. And this is one of the most profound statements about Chernobyl as a series, is how authorities failed its people in the Soviet system. Of course, they didn't only fail their people because they ultimately succeeded in containing this disaster. But the first episode focuses on how they delayed their first response and swept it under the rug, as it were. I'm gonna delve a little deeper in without the intention of spoiling this, but this isn't the kind of series that's really spoilable because it's based on historical facts that you probably have heard of and nothing has really changed except for a few artistic license points here and there. But episode one focuses on the process through which the Chernobyl nuclear disaster happened. It happened in 1986, five years before the collapse of the Soviet Union, in northern Ukraine, about 100 kilometers north of Kiev, the big city of the country, and just south of the Belarusian border in the former USSR. It happened at 1.23 a.m. That time is significant only because of how odd it is to have a safety test carried out at that time by the midnight shift. And we see the ineptitude, the stupidity, the evil 
at work by certain people, specifically the head engineer of the power plant. And we see the knee-jerk way as humans that we want to deny a thing that is on its face unbelievable. And to be sure, a disaster of this level is unfathomable. For a nuclear power plant to explode, for its internal core of graphite to land on the front yard of the building, has never happened before or since. The Fukushima nuclear disaster in Japan, in more recent memory, pales in comparison. That disaster didn't cost nearly as much life or environmental impact. And it was also largely caused by a natural disaster of its own, the typhoon that hit just beforehand. And it was contained with much more expediency and professionalism. Chernobyl, it wasn't quite the case, was it? Instead, we have people unaware of the, the weight of this thing sweeping through the nearby town of Pripyat. There's just a real sense of growing momentum and intensity from Chernobyl itself to Pripyat, to Kiev and Minsk, Belarus, to Moscow, to the rest of the world. This augmentation of horror, this settling into mass catastrophe and danger and simultaneously this sense of urgency and duty to do something to come together to accomplish a very clear task all within this confusion and mystery and what's necessary what is what protections do we need what at what point do we need to run in uh, regardless of protection, this kind of thing. And I felt this while watching the series time and again by the adept brilliance of its filmmakers who put together this series so well, breaking it down so effectively. But after this first episode, I was just rather aghast. No one wears masks. How could they not know that what they're dealing with is toxic how could people within the power plant not be wearing gloves or more protection? Were they so ignorant or oblivious? Were they so unprepared for such a thing? Perhaps. It's that kind of verisimilitude that I do question. Were they really so unprepared so as to run into an open reactor unprotected? only to die very soon after? Or is that a fictional flourish? The show, by and large, is extremely realistic. Nothing has changed in terms of big picture things. The fallout, the Soviet attempt at a cover-up, the fighting, the infighting between experts and leaders, the hope to save face on the global stage, and the need to point blame. All of these are real and are portrayed extremely well. But 
hundreds of scientists are condensed into just a few scientific characters. There might be a focus on a certain family dynamic that is just an amalgam of all the torn apart families that probably occurred at the time. People poisoned, people dying, pregnant women suffering through their pregnancies, people being displaced, all these kind of things. It's hard to fully show exactly how all that went down, but the show does manage. And it would be nitpicking to say it was like this or that, I think. What does seem clear is that in the face of such a calamity, reason and logic have a hard time prevailing. It's difficult for cooler heads to prevail in such heated moments. There are people in the rooms of these initial moments of the tragedy who believe their senses. They see what the computers are reading. They see that there's nothing left, that this explosion has happened, that there's no way to contain this or that per se from this control space. And yet here we have our villain, the head engineer of the facility who barks orders, blames others, insists on fallacies and misinformation. And it makes sense in a way how he prevails in a system that prizes something like hard-headedness or blunt force as if it's real strength. And we see this again and again with his higher-ups who want to believe a certain narrative, who want to put forward to their government's bosses that everything might be okay, that the citizens nearby watching the flames with something like a sense of awe and beauty are fine. Everything's in order. It's just a fire, this sort of thing. And I suppose watching this, I have something like a sympathy for people in these crises whose logic and, you know, systems of meaning break down in order to preserve a deeper sense of security. Valery is partnered with the Soviet bureaucrat kind of at first tasked with overseeing this whole process, which was initially thought to be less than it was. Stellan Skarsgård plays Boris Shermina, who is at first very wary of the science and this annoying scientist in his ear whose authority is being questioned or at least mediated by something like facts and science. And he's slow to pick up on that. He doesn't want to let go and give in to this guy. And it's not until he sees with his very eyes 
what is really happening here, what's really at stake to see these dark plumes of smoke billowing from the nuclear sites and to see its immense toxicity bring down helicopters near it to then fully comprehend that this is a dire situation that requires probably whatever the scientist tells him it requires. Though, of course, a scientist doesn't always know that. It's the scientific method of hypotheses, of experimentation, trial and error with mathematics that these kind of situations require. And it's hard to really measure how to dole that out. That's kind of where our third and final main character comes in, played by Emily Watson. She's called Ulana Komnyuk, and she's this representation of all scientists, as it were, an amalgam of characters who are there to check the facts, to research and provide further evidence, and assist Valeri in his overall mission of really understanding everything and doing what's necessary. And she does a lot of this background work of what has really happened technically, how it happened, and ultimately what can be done to prevent it from happening again. But time and again, it becomes evident that this is the kind of problem that requires a massive group undertaking. And different groups of people are tasked with this series of necessary precautions. Miners in later episodes are brought in to dig under the nuclear power plant to prevent further meltdown contamination into the earth. And they really highlight this immense sense of duty and workmanship that really rings true as a theme. The loss of innocence is another theme really well explored here in this series, specifically through a teenager who's tasked with carrying a gun across the countryside in order to prevent wild animals from breeding mutants and deformities into nature. And it's, it's a lot to digest, isn't it? It's, it's intense and it's graphic and we see the, the depths of suffering involved, but we also know that it's necessary, that sometimes things must happen in the short term that look ghastly in order for the greater good to prevail. In order to save some lives, other lives must be sacrificed, right? The real questions are, when is this really the case? When are we tasked with the need for sacrifice? What reasons are there to, for instance, go into Iraq or Afghanistan or Vietnam? What reason is there to put a man on the moon? What reasons are there to shelter in place or shut down the economy? What goals do we share that justify the 
work, the money, the efforts, the death that they probably will entail? Those are the questions. Chernobyl is a, is a nice compact example of a disaster so large that to fix that, it's pretty evident what's required. Some state secrets remain secret, some events remain covered up, and messes are swept under the rug because it's better for perceived national security or, you know, state or government dignity or respect. But in the case of Chernobyl, that wasn't really possible because the smoke, those heavy plumes of toxic air, were real and they carried across the continent of Europe through Eastern Europe and Germany and Western Europe up all the way into Sweden and beyond. And the world knew about it. There was just no covering it up. So the Soviet Union had to do something. They had to contain it and they had to throw real human lives at this problem in order to contain it, in order to prevent further suffering. They had to cause some near-term and immediate suffering by heroes, really, people that had to sacrifice their well-being for the greater good. And this is a utilitarian approach. In philosophy, there is something called utilitarianism, which ultimately prioritizes human flourishing. And isn't that what we all want in the end? Don't we want the world to flourish and our species to expand into the greatest possible manifestation that we can be. We have to wonder what that looks like and how we get there and how messy it might actually be, how much suffering might be involved so that we can indeed flourish. There's something called the trolley problem. This is a mind game that philosophers engage in that supposes there's a trolley on a track and it's moving along. And there are five people tied to the track and this trolley will kill them. There is a switch to divert that trolley away from the five people onto another track. But on that track, is another person tied to the tracks. What do you do? Do you pull the switch to spare the lives of the five, but actively kill the one? It's tricky because we have to explore all the details here. Do we presume that all lives are equal? And if so, perhaps it's the moral good to pull the switch and kill the solo person, even if that means that blood might be on your hands directly. But if you do nothing, if you take the passive way out, five people die. There are different versions of this playing around with, you know, your active involvement. For instance, perhaps there's a bridge over the trolley and a fat person is about to fall and prevent the trolley from moving forward. And you can save this person, but then the five people will die. Or you can let the person fall and the five people will be saved. 
this is a little more passive and maybe it's easier with our moral intuitions to let that happen. It's tricky still though. Or perhaps the one person on the other track is somebody you care about. Or maybe it's someone like Albert Einstein. And maybe the five people are serial killers. That might make it easier. But it's all to do with playing with our moral intuitions of how we measure sacrifice, how we analyze costs and benefits, and how implicit we are in doing evil or doing good and measuring the greater good. So you really do have to measure life, which is a very difficult thing, not a fun one, nothing that we want to do, unless perhaps you're in insurance. We measure lives all the time. And I think this is an example of how prescient this show has become in the age of coronavirus. I couldn't help while watching those scenes of the toxic air floating through the civilians that we're living in a time right now where we're taught that the air is poison. We're being encouraged to wear masks and to stay away from each other or at least keep, keep a safe distance because the droplets in our coughs and sneezes can land and infect another person. And it might not even be droplets. It could even just be our air that we breathe. It's hard to fully appreciate that without solid evidence. In Chernobyl, we see that evidence. We see the immense human suffering in hospitals of decaying skin and melting internal organs. We see how people can waste away from nuclear poisoning. It's harder to see that with the coronavirus. Nonetheless, we are told that it's happening. Its effects don't seem nearly as dire. And it's hard to say how much protection we really do need. It's a funny thing, a bit ironic really, that watching this show now shows me how serious things could be, theoretically. That there are substances on Earth that really can kill us and kill us quickly. I'm not sure coronavirus is one of those things. It does not hurt to be prepared for a pandemic even greater than this. And I support our precautions to protect as many people as possible. But to protect them how and who exactly? It's probably the easiest to think about protecting the elderly and people most vulnerable to illness. None of us want to see our grandparents die of COVID. But there are other things than health, aren't they, that we can lose beyond life itself. We lose work, we lose business, we lose potential relationships. We miss out on love and hugs and sex and affection. We lose out on joy and entertainment, culture and sports and concerts and going to the beach. So it makes sense when we think about human flourishing 
that there are contingents of people out there championing these things. It's easy to make them look callous because how could they possibly disregard the health and safety of our vulnerable populace? But how could you be so uncaring and unappreciative of the need for life to be lived at its fullest? It's a tricky balance, clearly, to weigh the pros and cons of this situation. But that is what utilitarianism aims to sort out. And it is the job of our politicians. We need policy that combines the sensitivities toward vulnerable people with the need to carry on with society. In Chernobyl, the series and the real life event, Valeri and Ulina and Boris know the real consequences of doing nothing and letting toxic material spread. This is not theoretical. It's not debated on charts and graphs how dangerous nuclear material is. Toxic poisoning is a very specific threat that they had to contain by any means necessary. And that's what they did. It wasn't too laborious and difficult for them to weigh the lives of the thousands of volunteers and soldiers and miners and civilians who really did make ultimate sacrifices for what was very clearly the greater good in that instance. This is a trolley problem. You have to sometimes sacrifice some people in order to save others. I think that's what's so nice about Chernobyl, that its goals and its risks are so clear. How nice wouldn't it be if coronavirus was like that? If we really knew how dangerous it was, if we really feared it, as opposed to having tons of people being asymptomatic, tons of healthy people getting over it, you know, hospital beds being available still after all this ruckus. New York City accepted. That's clearly a very specific situation with its own set of needs, unmatched by apparently the rest of the world for some reason. To have a clear enemy like a deadly, extremely contagious virus, as opposed to something maybe deadly, depends, it's really unsure, we don't know. We don't really know how you get it either, probably from your hands to your face, but maybe in the air, but I'm not sure, but why don't you wear a mask anyway, just to show that you're supportive. You know, with all these kind of variables, it's a lot harder to mobilize, isn't it? But mobilize we are, we're divided as to how to best approach it. 
we're getting into difficult conversations and discussions with our friends and family as well as on social media and the mainstream media. We're trying to figure out how to measure our sacrifices and the risk. We're trying to determine how close we can be with one another, how much normalcy we can maintain versus the dangers involved. But we do this every day. And it's not callous to point that out, that we die in car accidents, that we die from the flu, which is also a coronavirus. We die of heart disease, mostly, and cancer. And we don't obsess thinking about it on a regular basis. Some of us might. We do worry about driving safely and eating healthy. For sure, we want to do what can be done while maintaining a sensibility about things. We want automation and technology to help make the roads safer. We want food science, nutrition science, to understand what we eat. And we want an FDA and government programs to ensure that we're not being too risky or unhealthy with what we consume with our bodies. But we don't outlaw cars. We don't make the speed limit 10 miles per hour. And we would do those things if life itself was the only priority. There's a woman in this series, a great little scene of an old person not wanting to leave her house that she's been in for years and years. And she talks about how she didn't move when the Nazis showed up. She didn't move during any of the wars that she had seen or the famines. And why should she move now? But was ultimately convinced that this was different. I really like this woman. And I still wonder, at her age, why not let her carry on and perhaps die of nuclear poison? Isn't it in our right to determine how we die and how we live? It's a very fine line that authorities have to measure and identify. How much pressure to put on, how much liberty to let exist. This is what California's governor, Gavin Newsom, or Andrew Cuomo in New York, or Donald Trump, or Angela Merkel have to determine. And it's a difficult thing to do, but it's the job of our policymakers and leaders. And it's tricky, but it's a measurable metric. And in Chernobyl, what I like so much is that the goal is clear. The, the tasks at hand make sense. And I'm on board with them like everyone else. And that gives me a good feeling of bonding with my fellow citizens. And I see the propaganda now in the USA and globally around the coronavirus how we're all apart but in this together, how we're all flattening the curve and doing our part and that it's not about us 
but that we're protecting the vulnerable together. Every ad uses the word together. Check out the supercut on YouTube of every COVID-19 ad being the same these days. And I want that feeling. I do. I liked, in a way, in a sort of bleak, macabre way, living in New York City when Hurricane Sandy hit and how we all hunkered down with somebody we cared about and got all of our rations, you know, got all of our bottles of water at the time and just enjoyed Netflix, waiting out the storm together. I like that feeling of becoming ready and vigilant against the face of adversity. And what I don't like about coronavirus is that it's not clear what we're really doing or why we're doing it. It's not clear to me why unemployment has skyrocketed beyond measure. For what? To save how many lives exactly? Or to unburden hospitals from what exactly? Of course, I know the deal. I know that first responders and doctors need all the help and support they can get. And I'm happy to blame Trump's administration for canceling the pandemic response team, for delaying tests for some stupid unknown reason, for not having it together to properly address the situation. But I also sympathize with people that want to get life back to normal, that don't know why they're doing this, that feel like it's just a big sense of panic, that we're blowing this out of proportion, that ultimately the cure is worse than the disease. It's a talking point that I will endorse, frankly, for the coronavirus, but in Chernobyl, it was clearly not the case. The disease was worse. It was known how toxic fumes from nuclear fallout would kill you and kill you painfully. And it does feel good to join in on a human campaign toward something specific, the goal of human flourishing. And right now, I just don't quite feel that because I want human flourishing, but I might define it as sacrificing some of the weak in order for us to all move forward as strong as possible. It might sound too Darwinian, and I don't know how much I believe it, but I know it's there somewhat. I think the irony is that watching a show like Chernobyl can give you that feeling, whereas living through it right now doesn't. And that's kind of crazy. It also shows you this flip side, this alternate reality, as it were, where the scientific threat of a thing does require more attention than it gets. So that in the Soviet Union, this Chernobyl event demanded intense and immediate action and didn't quite get it at the speed it could have. Whereas here in the modern world with this virus we have now, we're doing a lot of immediate attention, maybe a little slow, definitely not as good as it could have been under Trump. But 
I just wonder if it demands that same level of intense, life-changing systems. You know? I just wonder that. Let's talk about other themes. Let's talk about corruption and conspiracy. In Chernobyl, we witness how authoritarian, totalitarian systems can pollute a human spirit, where selfishness and greed can hurt on a social level catastrophically. This is how hierarchies can become corrupt. People are ignoring the evidence in order to save their jobs. That happens. Whistleblowers are silenced because they're a threat. And a corrupt system like the USSR incentivizes for their corruption, doesn't it? You see in the subsequent episodes later on that explain it, how there are incentives for people to rise up the ranks by performing safety tests sooner than necessary in order to get medals and advance their careers. That kind of thing happens. And when you know that that happens, it gives you a sly eye on the news and certain high-ranking officials moving up their chains of command and the like. Those things happen. Those things can happen in the USA. They can happen anywhere. And we have to remain vigilant as citizens to prevent those things from happening. I think the HBO series The Wire does the best job of showing how our institutions do fail in real terms and very sadly. And even when everyone involved wants the best thing, sometimes there's just not enough resources, not enough money. Sometimes education and journalism and policing all conflict with each other. And that's really a shame. And even when you have experts in the room, even when you have the scientists of Chernobyl dictating policy, you still have to wonder if they're taking you into the right direction. Anthony Fauci is a big name. I suppose he's earned it. But as he leads the US under Trump's administration in terms of actual science and recommendations, he's on record as saying, if we're perceived as overreacting, that means we're doing something right. Now, I can graft that logic onto the science in Chernobyl because I see how deadly and indiscriminate toxic waste is. It's not quite the same for every kind of pandemic or virus. And of course, an immunologist or a virologist is going to say something like, we need to take drastic action. This is the only priority here. We have to shut everything down. We have to do all these things. And I just think, <laughs> I wouldn't trust somebody who studies chicken pox with this. So we have to measure then exactly how dangerous 
each specific virus is. And I'm just still not convinced. Maybe that makes me equivalent to a Soviet peasant who can't quite take the guards and the orders as serious. But somehow, I doubt it. Somehow I think I can see a friend who has a clean bill of health, very evidently, who's been practicing good hygiene and personal space, safe distance, and I don't have to wear a mask and gloves around him because there's an implicit trust and understanding there. And we also can appreciate the risks and evaluate them on our own. And that's the case with Sweden. Sometimes you don't need a government ordinance to entrust into a population really common sense, healthful practices. Sometimes we all know, perhaps, how to keep personal space and to wash our hands. We all know how to cover our mouths and to stay home when we're at risk. Sometimes I think a scientist like Fauci doesn't understand that and wants a flat, all-purpose dictum to maximally control the populace. And to his credit, he's a scientist, not a president. So I just think we have to take that with a grain of salt sometimes. That's the conversation. And it's a conversation that we have to have the maturity to handle with the coronavirus. Finally, Chernobyl is just a fantastically made piece of art, technically speaking, from its acting and its amazing music composed by Mark Mothersbaugh to its editing and directing. Creator and writer Craig Mazin and director Johan Renk really understand storytelling. To know when to really zoom in on a thing and live with that for the moment, or when to gloss over months and months of time passing. It's hard to know how much weight to place on one exact rescue mission or of clearing a rooftop of extremely dangerous graphite versus how much to focus on a courtroom scene and what weight is really being expressed with standing up against the state. These are hard things for directors to balance because a story has so many parts to it. But I think the director and the writers of Chernobyl do it perfectly. And to contrast Chernobyl to a show that doesn't do it nearly as well, I want to pick on another HBO series that just premiered, just for the sake of it, called The Plot Against America, which is based on a novel by Philip Roth, which my dad had read, so he was really keen on watching this series. It has a similar structure. It's a miniseries of five or six episodes, similar running time. And given that we're living in this age of such great competition among these production companies, it's a well-produced show. It's shot a little too hyper-real looking and it has serious pacing problems. 
but it has Winona Ryder and John Turturro, and I gave it a shot. I'll admit I haven't finished it. But to give a sense of why I'm comparing it here, Plot Against America also bases itself on history. In this case, the 1930s and 40s uh, under Franklin Delano Roosevelt, president of the USA, and Charles Lindbergh runs against him and wins. Lindbergh really did run. He was a national hero aviator guy in the 30s. Uh, He was a Nazi sympathizer to some extent. And this story focuses on a Jewish family and neighborhood outside New York who is tormented and victimized and maybe paranoid, but then the paranoia is justified, this kind of story. And the show asks, what if this sort of thing were to happen? The novel by Philip Roth uses this sort of conceit of altering history as a way of fear-mongering, from what I can see. It's a way of feeding our sense of scary authoritarianism. And the filmmakers, David Simon among them, amazing creator of The Wire, somehow want to graft this logic onto our current system and how Trump himself might be a demagogue on the level of Hitler, everyone's favorite dictator comparison. And it just doesn't ring true to me the way that Chernobyl's themes do. The Plot Against America wants to immerse us in this paranoid fantasy of a deep state out to get us. Not even a deep state, a superficial one. One that barely hides its bigotry and racism. One that is going to exterminate, like Hitler did, whoever it doesn't like. And I know this is a popular way of thinking among some of my friends. And I just have to ask, is this the existential threat of our time, this kind of hateful totalitarianism? I really don't think so. I think it's pretty clear that Trump himself is not a totalitarian. He might be a megalomaniac, and he might be hateful, though that's even hard to parse out. I know it's easy to throw those barbs at him and act like those are the be-all and end-all, but it seems more like an opportunist. But mostly just to see his own inflated image. He's not taking, he's not seizing power from corporations and manufacturers in the time of need like he could be and many of us are wondering why he isn't he's not taking over other countries he's not rounding up people despite what aoc and abolish borders enthusiasts might have you believe he's mostly just a hack republican doing the awful bidding of the Republican Party. He's essentially a buffoon, but he's not a terrifying authoritarian. Authority is threatening when it's a bloated bureaucracy with 
etiquette and ideology sewn into it. It's the mess of the Soviet Union as a complex entity, not specifically under Stalin. Mikhail Gorbachev, the final USSR leader, supposed that Chernobyl's disaster led to the fall of the Soviet Union because it exposed it for an intricate system of lies and incompetence. And this is the kind of authority that we have to be wary of, the authority almost of good intentions. There's a certain sense of paranoia in the air, always, and our attention is grabbed by it. And that's obviously the case in coronavirus. But it just makes me wonder what the real threat is. And I think it's something more like fear itself, as Roosevelt put it in a speech, that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. And I know that you might worry that certain demographics have something to be afraid of, that not everyone has the same playing field, or that the government or corporations aren't ensuring the safety and well-being of everyone equally. And I can definitely get into that. I'm totally happy to advocate for individuals and for equality of opportunity for everybody to remove all barriers and cheer for people to do great things. But I'm just wondering about the Democratic Party. I'm wondering about how divisive everything is, even when we seek unity, how it's a party of workers and women and trans people and black people and immigrants rather than just a party of people with certain values, values of liberty and justice, for instance. And I think there's a theme here that ties back to coronavirus, which is a feeling of alienation and isolation. I am not relating to people. I don't feel like people understand me. I feel alienated by modern rhetoric. My hot take is that media these days push certain agendas that need questioning. And I want to question them. I would love to feel united with many of the causes of our era. For instance, more unity, more inclusivity, more access to the American project of prosperity. But I'm just not sure that isolating and alienating everybody of in-grouping in smaller and smaller groups is the way to go. And that this alienation and this atomization of people is continuing with our shutdown and self-quarantining. And that we actually need each other. We need each other. We need 
physical contact. We need camaraderie. We need to see one another in physical space. And that is much a fan I am of digital technological developments. Zoom meetings will not replace the real thing. As a digital nomad, to some extent, I hope they do. But as a person, they can't. They just can't. And I don't want to be atomized and individualized to this extent. I choose to celebrate art and consume media that advocates a united project that celebrates our strength together and that rings true universally. And as much as paranoid thinking might be a universal idea, I don't think it's what the world needs. I think our specific 24-7 news channels are a detriment to our social well-being. Instead, I think we need commonality. We need a shared understanding of truth and facts. We have the ability to sense when we see that. Chernobyl, HBO, that's a good place to find it. Let me know if you have any other examples that I should check out. I'm always open to more discussion. My thoughts are fluid. I'm happy to change my mind upon further consideration. Hope that's given you something to chew on, everybody. I'll leave it there for now. Until next time, this is Keith, thinking. Ciao.